All right, well, I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. This morning, Lord willing, we will finish book four of the Psalms. Now, I'd like to take just a moment before we get into this text to kind of step back and just get kind of a bird's eye view of where we have been. In book one of the Psalms, we traced the early life of David, especially his years on the run from King Saul. Many of those Psalms in that first book of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And we realize it was a time of great testing and trial in the life of David, and so many of the psalms that he wrote reflect that. Of course, in that first book, we find uh, psalms like everyone's favorite, Psalm 23, the beautiful shepherd psalm, which reminds us of David's humble beginnings. Book 2 of the psalms ends there in Psalm 72 with uh, David's son Solomon seated on the throne of Israel in fulfillment of God's promise. It was the first step of the covenant fulfillment that God had promised. Solomon seated on the throne. Book 3 traces from there the downward spiral of the Israelite kings, which ended in the destruction of the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and even the cutting off of the throne of David. And that's Psalm 89. The psalmist brings that book to a close by appealing to God's faithfulness to His covenant, even though it appeared by human, uh, human standards that the Lord had turned His back on His people. And then we, we've just finished, or we're just finishing book four. What do you say when the people have been taken into exile and the city and the temple have been destroyed and everything that they know has been lost? And they begin to question whether God's promise and His covenant is really true. What do you say? Well, book 4 says, Yahweh is king. He rules over the whole world so that no matter how bad things appear on the earth, they are not out of His control. But everything on the earth is moving toward the end that He has chosen. That's what the message, the the central thrust of this fourth book of the Psalms is. The Lord rules. And His plan is being carried out on the earth. And it will come to its final conclusion as He has planned it. With that in mind... Just, just reminding ourselves, these last few psalms that we've considered in the book, uh, that they, the last ones here focus on specific aspects of God's royal authority. He is king, but what does that look like? And we, 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 we considered some of these things. Psalm 103 dealt with his power in the moral realm. God is the ruler of not just of the physical world, but He is the ruler of the moral world. He has the power to forgive sins 
Not by simply ignoring them. See, that would be immoral. That would be an example of God unrighteous. Now, the righteous God who rules is able to forgive sins because he is able to completely remove sins from his people. That was Psalm 103. Psalm 104 focused on his rule in the world as the creator and sustainer of the physical world. He provides for the needs of everything he has made without exception. Psalm 105 spoke of his sovereignty in the history of mankind, especially with respect to his chosen people, Israel. What we saw in the last two weeks in that psalm was that God kept those people and he guarded his covenant promises to Abraham from every threat over the course of centuries. God was sovereign. God was faithful. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 106. And Psalm 106 also deals with the history of Israel. So there's a lot of similarities between this psalm and Psalm 105. The history that Psalm 106 focuses on is not quite as extensive. It begins with the Exodus in the 1400s. But it goes down further in history to the return of the captives from Babylon in the late 500s. On the surface, this psalm is not, doesn't seem to be focused as much on God and His ruling power and authority, but on the surface appears to be much more focused on the rebelliousness of the people. Some of the things you'll notice as we read through Psalm 106, in contrast, remember Psalm 105, over and over, it was he did this, he did this, he did that. It was God acting. Psalm 106, you'll read they, 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 they. We'll read what the people did over and over and over again. So it appears, and when, at first glance, that the focus is taken off of God and put on men, on the Israelites. But when we look closer, we realize that even that causes us to look back and see that in contrast with the unchanging nature of God. And so we're going to see that He still is the focus and His perfect, uh, unchanging, uh, and merciful nature is in view. Look with me there, Psalm 106, verse 1. He says this, there's no heading to the psalm, just the introduction. Praise the Lord. The word there is hallelujah. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all His praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and He who does righteousness at all times. Let's pray and ask God's blessing and help as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to You uh, once again preparing to study and examine your word. And Lord, we ask that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us, give us insight and understanding as we read uh, this psalm. Help us to see the message of your mercy and the, 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 uh, the only hope that we have of deliverance from sin is in you. Help us to see these truths in this psalm 
I pray that you would impress them upon our hearts. That your Holy Spirit would teach us, would convict us, would reprove us, would instruct us, would comfort us. Lord, that you would do your work in us through your word today. And I pray that you'd help me as I speak to bring glory to you and to be your servant today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 106 begins with that word, that Hebrew word, hallelujah. The same word that Psalm 105 ended with. Of course, the New King James translates that word, but it translates to praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. This is the response. And we we talked last week about the importance of a right response. The response of faith to the power and the glory of God. What is the right response? How should all of the world, every creature and everything in it, how should we respond to the power and the majesty and the glory of God? We should lift up our voices and praise the Lord. It's all encapsulated in that one Hebrew word. Hallelujah! But notice how the rest of verse 1 explains why we ought to praise the Lord. He is good. His mercy, His faithful love endures forever. Two of His character traits here are given as the basis for worshiping and praising Yahweh. He is good. That means that He is good in the widest sense. That word good here is a very generic term for good. That means to be something that is beautiful, something that is morally good, something that is pleasing to the senses. This psalmist tells us that God is all of these things. He is pleasing. He is beautiful. He is morally good. And, the psalmist says, His faithful love, that word is translated mercy here, His faithful love endures forever. This is the word chesed. We've talked about this word numerous times through the book of Psalms. It's a very common word in the Hebrew Old Testament, but it has a very specific usage. It's referring to his covenant loyalty. This is the faithfulness of God to his people that he has made covenant with. God keeps his covenants He is faithful. He is loyal. The psalmist says his mercy or his faithful, loyal love endures forever. The Lord, God, is the standard of goodness and the standard of loyalty. How do I know that? Well, because in God, his goodness and his loyal love are forever. They're unchanging. They're eternal We can measure anyone else's goodness or anyone else's loyalty and love by comparing them to God. He's so wonderful, he's so loyal that words cannot even express fully and adequately these these attributes. That's what the psalmist says in the second verse. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can uh, declare all his praise? It's literally impossible to describe him completely without leaving out something important, without coming to the limits of human speech. His glory is inexpressible. And yet we're invited to try. 
praise the Lord. But you know, verse 3, it's interesting because he didn't just stop at verse 2 and say, it's impossible for us to say everything that we, that we would like to say about God. It's impossible for us to communicate fully who God is. Words fail. That's true. But where words fail, actions are necessary. How we live says far more about our relationship to God than what we say. And you know that's true. There are a lot of people who claim to know God. A lot of people who claim to love God, claim to serve God, claim to be Christians. But one look at their life tells you an awful lot about their love, supposed or the lack thereof, for Christ. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. He asked the question, why do you say you love God and you don't do the things that God says to do? Actions speak louder than words. The man who wants to truly praise the Lord will find that words fail. But we can emulate the righteousness of God. Verse 3 speaks here of those who keep justice and do righteousness at all times. Living a righteous life. That's how we can truly honor and worship the Lord. So, I mean, in these first three verses, you have like a whole theology of worship and of, 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 of living by faith. It's all here. We're to praise the Lord because He's good and merciful. We are to, to use every, uh, every ounce of, of uh, ability that we have to communicate, to speak, and use every bit of linguistic prowess that we can to communicate the goodness and the, the, the mercy of God. But when words fail us, we ultimately must demonstrate with lives that, that, that keep justice and do righteousness That's how we show the the, the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the goodness of God. But it's almost as though, even as the psalmist writes these words, he is reminded of his own failures. Because he does say, he who does righteousness at all times. You see that in verse 3? That's a, a fairly high standard to uphold, isn't it? Anyone want to claim that today? Don't raise your hand, please. No, the truth of the matter is the psalmist, like us, realizes that this is not something that he is capable of. And so in, immediately he responds by pleading for mercy and forgiveness. Look at verses 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. Oh, visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. I love these verses because they show us the interesting interplay between the the individual and the community of faith. You see that here? The psalmist asks God to remember him speaking of himself as an individual. And what he means, of course, we talked about this word remember. This is important. Remember means more than just bring to mind. It means to focus on. 
It means to meditate on, to make something the focal point. And he's saying, God, remember to do the things you promised. That's what he's saying here. Fulfill your covenant promises toward me. Speaking as an individual. So he's speaking here of his own personal salvation. But notice, he hopes for that when? When you show favor to your people. Right? This is, this is his own experience of the, the grace of God is rooted in the experience of the whole community. And so he expects to experience personally this salvation, this deliverance, when God does this great work for all the people of Israel. When, when he fulfills his covenant promises to all of them. He cannot save the one without pouring out his grace on the other. So the individual here, even as he prays for himself, is also praying for his community. And he's speaking as an Israelite here. All of them are members of the covenant. So when he's praying for himself, for God to, to finally and ultimately work out his salvation in his life, he's at the same time saying, God, bring this to all of us who belong to you. This is a very Old Testament way of looking at God's dealings with men. In the New Testament... This is universalized to the extent that the Apostle Paul can say in Acts 17 that God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, now commands all men everywhere to repent. Here in Psalm 106, it's the nation of Israel and this believing Israelite who's crying out for God to come and fulfill His promises to Israel. But Paul says in Acts 17, listen, it's everybody all of us can, can and are responsible to call out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. So as we read this psalm, we realize we're talking about someone in a very distinct position. He is looking for the hope of the nation of Israel. That is what his focus is. Because he knows that when God fulfills his promises to the people of Israel, he himself will experience the blessing of those promises. That's why it matters that Yahweh's faithful love, his mercy endures forever. Well, look at how he describes that salvation hope there in these verses 4 and 5. He describes it this way. It's the prosperity of your chosen ones, the joy of your nation, and it's your heritage. Because for the psalmist and for the children of Israel, salvation meant more than just getting out of hell. Salvation meant a relationship with Yahweh. Not just for one person, but for the whole nation. One day, because, and this was the covenant promises God made. This was the covenant that God made with them. And the hope was that his goodness and his faithful love would bring this to pass. One day the nation of Israel would enjoy this privileged position of being known as the heritage of God. That's what he speaks about here, the the last line there, that I may glory with your inheritance. 
God's inheritance is His people. That's what He's talking about here. They were to be known as the heritage of Yahweh, His chosen ones, the ones in whom He delights, the people that He fills with rejoicing. Wouldn't you want to experience that? To be one of those people? The psalmist does. He believes that Yahweh will keep His promises to Israel. And he wants to be there when it happens. That's what he's expressing here. He's praying that the Lord would finish his work and bring his will to pass for his people during his own lifetime. The psalmist is saying, God, you've made promises to these people, to this nation. I'm one of them. What I want so much is for you to fulfill those promises right now because I want to experience it. There is a... There is a, a, a a comparison to this or an analog to this in the New Testament. Jesus, you remember, uh, his disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. One of the things that Jesus told them to pray was, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is, I believe, essentially the same thing that the psalmist is praying for. Lord, bring your kingdom to earth and rule here on earth just like you do in heaven. I want to see it happen. I want to be here when it happens. Bring your kingdom to earth. That's what the psalmist is asking for. That's what he's hoping for. We've seen this throughout this book four of the Psalms, that they they present to us Yahweh as king. He rules over the world. But there is coming a day when his kingdom will be realized in a way on the earth that it is not realized now. There is coming a day when he is actually going to be present on the earth and rule imminently. He doesn't do it that way now, but he will. And there's the hope of that. That's the looking forward hope that the psalmist here is is speaking to, even as he's praying for his own salvation, even as he's praying for God to do a work for him and in him, he's looking ahead to what God has promised. And he's saying, God, you made promises and I want to claim those promises. I want to see this. There's a problem though. And the problem is that the psalmist and his people, Israel, have not lived righteously before the Lord. They have sinned. Sin always gets in the way between us and God. It disrupts our relationship with Him. It prevents us from experiencing all of the blessings that He desires to give to His people. This was true for the psalmist and for the nation of Israel. And it's just as true for you and me today. That sin disrupts. Sin gets in the way between us and God and and, and it hinders our fellowship with God. I'm talking here, of course, speaking of the psalmist and of us as believers, people who already belong to God. This psalm and this message is primarily focused on that, although we'll talk at the end about what this means for those here who may not already be Christians, who may not already know the Lord, may not already have forgiveness. We'll talk about that. But I want you to see here that this psalm and the psalmist offers us an example for how to deal with this issue of sin in our own lives. Sin that separates us from God. Sin that deprives us of the joy of fellowship. There's a word for the solution, by the way, for what the psalmist does and what we have to do if we want to have a restored fellowship with God. And it's this word, confession. The first five verses of this introduce the psalm, as we've looked at, but they are what I call the basis of confession. 
These, these opening verses, I think, give us the basis of confession. And what is it? It's very simple. We've already mentioned it. Yahweh is good. He is loyal and His love remains forever. And because of that, the psalmist can pray for salvation and hope to receive mercy. The same thing is true for us today. So this is the basis, what we've already looked at. But the question that I want to ask, and the question that is really laid out for us in the rest of the psalm, is what does this confession look like? What does it look like to confess our sin to the Lord? And what is our hope ultimately? So let's take a look at that. What I call the psalmist example. Look at verse 6. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. I want to point out here, first of all, look at verse 6. This is really important. We have to understand this, how he speaks in verse 6. He identifies himself... And the, the, the Israelites of his own generation with uh, their fathers, with their ancestors here. Because he's referring to and he's talking about the history, things that have happened in the past, but he's associating himself with them. But I need to, we need to be, understand this. He's not taking the blame for their sins. They're accountable for themselves. He's accountable for himself. That distinction is maintained. However, he says that they have sinned in the same way. That's literally what he means when he says we've sinned with our fathers. He's saying we've sinned in the same way as them. We've sinned like them. We have committed the same kinds of sins. So he's, he's identifying with them. He's not trying to sugarcoat things. He's not going to try to pretend that somehow their fathers were worse than than they are. Right? He's not going to do that. And that's how we tend to think. We tend to think of, of other people who are really bad, but we are mostly good. We were talking about this on Wednesday night, just this last Wednesday night. And we have a tendency to want to say, everybody out there is really bad. Look at all those people who are doing this over there. And look at these people over here doing that. They're really wicked. They're really corrupt. And we tend to excuse ourselves. Or, and this happens, is hap- happening a lot, we tend to look at people who lived in the past and we condemn them for their sins. Slavery. That's really popular today. To look back at anybody in the past... By the way, it was pretty much everybody in the past. All right? But to look at people in the past and say, well, they, they owned slaves. They were terrible people. Okay? I'm not going to defend slavery. But then we condone our own sins. Abortion, anyone? Those people back there were really bad and wicked. Okay, but that doesn't excuse us today, see? But we tend to do that. 
We minimize it. We, we, we're self-righteous about the sins of others even while we, we guard and we condone our own sins. But true confession of sin does not involve making excuses for ourselves. Right? If we're really going to confess sin, there can be no but. Except, but if you understood, it wasn't my fault. None of that stuff is allowed. Let me explain. No. True biblical confession cannot include any of that. No excuses. We can't pretend that we're not as bad as someone else. We can't pretend that we have any reason to think that God is not as offended by our sin as He is by everyone else's sin. That somehow my sin doesn't make me as offensive to God as your sin does. The minute we begin to think that, and that's a human, uh, natural human tendency, the minute we begin to do that, we are no longer confessing sin to the Lord. We're defending our sin. We're condoning our sin. And so the psalmist here is very, very clear, and it's very important that he does this. He is not, uh, he, he is not going to pretend that he's any better than these people who came before him. He's going to lay out their example because everyone knows these stories. But what he's saying is, I, am, I and my people and the people who are with me and the people who live in the time I live, we are just the same. We are just as guilty. We are just as corrupt and just as much sinners. That's important. The language that he uses is also important because he says both we and our fathers have sinned. The word sinned there, it means to miss the mark. It's a term that was originally used in archery to describe the distance between where your arrow hit and where the bullseye was in the target. That's the sin. It's the mark. It's how far off you were from where you should have been. So the first word he uses, he says, we've missed the mark. It's the same word, by the way. Well, it's different language, but, but Paul uses the same word in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all, Paul says, have missed the mark. The psalmist says, yes, the fathers did, we did. We've missed the mark. But then he says, we have committed iniquity. We have done wrong, which literally means we have twisted or perverted our way. We've done wrong. We've twisted. We've perverted our way before God. And then notice he says, thirdly, we have done wickedly. This means we've made a total mess of things. To do wickedly means to stir up trouble, to provoke the Lord and grieve the Lord. And the psalmist says, this is, this is what we've done. Listen, he... He's not minimizing his sin. He's not making light of it. In fact, what he's doing is he's, he's emphasizing it as strongly and powerfully as he knows how. He says, we've missed the mark. We've perverted. We've gone off the path on our own way. And we have grieved God. And I have done it just as much as all of those people who came before me who did these wicked things that I'm going to talk about. This is confession. This is the psalmist owning up to 
his sins. See, when we're going to confess our sins, we have to see how wrong, how perverse, how corrupt our sins are. And we have to put that into words. We have to put it into words. It's not enough to think it. We have to say it. We have to communicate this. This is what I have done. It is corrupt. It is wicked. It is perverse. That's how we have to speak. From this point on, beginning in verse 7, the psalmist recounts Israel's history. And he gives specific examples of the sins of the fathers. Sins which he and the men of his own generation have committed and done in their own ways, in their own context. But, but, but the same sins. And I think as we go through them, you're going to see that we are no different. That we do these same things, or we, or we have the tendency or the risk of doing these same things. The first sin that he speaks of here is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. The Lord, and we read this in verses 7 through 12, the Lord delivered them from Egypt, did great signs and miracles. They came out with rejoicing and the anticipation of going into the promised land and the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And then they found themselves backed up against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army hot on their heels. And that moment, instead of trusting in God, this powerful, wonderful, glorious God who had delivered them with his mighty arm, instead of trusting that God would rescue them, they rebelled. In fact, they accused Moses of leading them to die out in the wilderness. And by accusing Moses, they were accusing God. They said, aren't there graves back in Egypt? We could have died there. Why did you bring us out here just to be slaughtered? They did not believe in spite of what they had seen. But as we read here, God did not abandon them. Even in light of their unbelief, He rescued them from the power of their enemy. And the waters of the Red Sea, instead of being a barrier that led to their destruction, those very waters destroyed the chariots of Pharaoh. And it says in verse 12 that they believed His promises and they sang His praise. Unfortunately, their faith would be short-lived. Look at verse 13. They soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. The next sin that He confesses here is the sin of discontent with God's supernatural provision. The Lord gave them bread from heaven. And what did they want? Meat. They were completely unsatisfied. Do you know, don't you think if they had asked God for meat, He would have just said, okay, I'll give you meat. Sure. You want something? God loves them. Would God have, have withheld something good from them? If they said, you know, we'd love to have some meat, some protein. You know, it's a balanced diet. We just, or we're low carb or something. I don't know. But, but if they said, we just, we want some meat. Lord, will you provide? If they just prayed and said, God, would you please? We, we just, we just love, we just want some meat. You know, it just sounds like it'd be good. We're, would you provide? Don't you think God would have done that for them? But see, that's not what they did. You see, when they, when they became discontented with the bread, what they said was this. 
Oh, remember back in Egypt, all the fish we got to eat? And don't you remember the cucumbers and the garlics and the leeks and the melons and the onions? Oh, that was so wonderful back in Egypt. We had it so good there. I mean, there was, a, there was like a, a, a supermarket and we didn't have to pay for it. We just got to have all this food. It was so good back there. I mean, they forgot all about the enslavement, the beatings, the hardship, the murder of their children. Eh, just forget all that stuff. We had the good food. You see, they, they were discontented. Their discontentment actually caused them to... It caused them to really blaspheme God. It caused them to forget that they were the ones who were suffering in slavery and had cried out for God's mercy to save them. And now they're saying, oh, we wish you'd never done that. He wish he'd have left us there. It was so much better. No, it wasn't. Because of their discontentment, God judged them. But how did he judge them? He gave them exactly what they asked for. What it says. He gave them their request. But he gave them something else too. This is the danger, by the way. One of the commentaries that I read uh, in the kind of the conclusion summary where they were talking about kind of the, what's the takeaway, the point. They just said, be careful what you ask God for. They, they begged God for meat. God gave it to them. But along with the meat, He sent leanness into their soul. He destroyed them. There was no satisfaction. There was no fulfillment. There was no pleasure. There was no happiness, no joy in it. In fact, getting what they wanted ruined them. Be careful what you ask for. The psalmist continues in the next stanza, verse 16. He says, When they envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. This was the sin of jealousy. Several men led a rebellion against the appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron, because they wanted to have their voices heard. What happened was the earth swallowed up Korah and Dathan and Abiram, all their supporters. There were 250 men from their group that were uh, approaching the tabernacle offering incense. And the Bible says that the fire went out from God and it consumed those men because they thought they could stand in the place of the priests and offer incense to God because of their jealousy. Jealousy is wicked. Its consequences are disastrous. It led to the destruction of thousands of the people because they jealously envied Moses and Aaron. We continue on. We read the next, next of the sin of idolatry. Verse 19, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses his chosen one stood before him in the breach? to turn away his wrath 
lest he destroy them. The children of Israel were encamped there at the base of the mountain of God. There they were, the the very place where God had come down to meet with Moses. They saw the, the fire and the smoke and they heard the thunder from the mountain and it terrified them. And even there, in that place, with those amazing sights before them, they forgot God, their Savior, who did great things in Egypt. We are so prone to forget. The truth and the reason for that is that we want to forget. We're willing to forget what God has done. They took their gold and jewelry, they melted it down, and they formed a golden calf. Some people have said that they were worshiping Yahweh, but using the golden calf to do it. That's not what this psalm says. The psalmist makes it very, very clear in verse 20. They changed their glory. Literally, they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox. They made a trade, an intentional trade. They were not worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping a golden calf. Paul quotes this verse. He, he quotes it from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. In Romans 1, in verse 23, you might be familiar with that verse. Paul, in Romans 1, is describing the world system that is anti-God and anti-truth. And he says that they exchange the glory of God and worship for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Paul is quoting from this verse. This is what idolatry is. It is an exchange. It is exchanging the glory of God for the image of a beast or even of man himself. It is vile. It is wicked. It is blasphemous. And it is stupid. We're told in verse 23 that God would have destroyed Israel completely. He says it. He would have destroyed them if Moses had not stepped in the way. Moses put himself in between God and the people. And he turned away God's wrath. I don't have time to expand on that any today. The sin of idolatry. It's devastating. The next sin that the children of Israel committed is the sin of cowardice. They rejected God's promises and they drew back in fear. Verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe His word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore He raised His hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. Is cowardice really a sin? You probably don't think of it in those terms very often. When the Israelites have been given a direct command by God and they shrank back from it out of fear? Yes. Their drawing back was an act of unbelief in God's promises and in the faithfulness and goodness of Him to give Him the land that that He said. When they did that, 
When they, when they shrank back, when they, when they complained in their tents, when they did not uh, follow through, but instead they, they despised, they rejected the land that God promised them. It, when they did that, acting out of fear rather than faith. The Bible says there in verse 26 that God raised his hand in an oath. Again, we're very familiar with this picture. I don't know if they do this anymore in court. Now, you know, things have changed so much in our society. But, you know, they used to make you raise your hand and... Wait, right hand. I'm left-handed. But you raise your right hand, you put your you know, hand in the Bible. I don't think they use a Bible anymore. At least they don't have... I don't know. You see it anymore. But this tells us God did that. He raised his hand. He swore an oath. He said, you people, you will never make it into the promised land. Every single one of you is going to die in this wilderness. You're all dead. Still on your feet, but you're all dead. Because you're never going to make it out of this wilderness. Of course, the exception, Joshua and Caleb, the only two men who stood against the mob. And their lives were, 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 were endangered by it because they obeyed God. But, but all the rest died in the wilderness. God swore they were going to die. And he even warned of the future captivity that would come in their children because of that disobedience. This was the sin of cowardice, the sin of fear. When God had spoken, and instead of obeying, they feared. And they gave in to fear. Verse 28, we continue on here. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. This is the sin of apostasy. Apostasy means to abandon the faith that they had once held. The Israelites had had entered into a covenant with God. They had agreed to this covenant. They had agreed to obey and worship the Lord. They had agreed to follow His laws. And then they became involved with the women of Moab in in an incident of cultic prostitution. That's the picture here. Some sort of a temple worship setting that that, that turned into this, this immoral orgy. It was the basest form of immorality and sensual worship. And it so angered the Lord that He sent a plague among the Israelites to destroy them. The psalmist here mentions Phineas. Phineas was Aaron's grandson. And we don't have time to go through the whole account, but he took a javelin and he killed an Israelite man and a Moabite woman who were engaged in this sinful, immoral worship. And this bloody act stopped the plague. The danger of apostasy is great. The danger that we might turn away from the faith that we've been given, the faith that we have confessed. Because this danger is so great, we have to always be on guard. We have to be swift to rid ourselves and our church of any hint of falling away from the faith. This is why we need each other. Because each one of us is so prone to turning away and falling away. And we need those who will come and confront us and rebuke us and encourage us and strengthen us and help us. 
We need those who will act like Phineas and be, a, be, be zealous for what's right. Apostasy is a great danger. The next incident is usually blamed on Moses. But God knew the truth and he puts the blame where it belongs. Look there at verse 32. They angered him also at the waters of strife. Talking about the children of Israel angering the Lord. So that it went ill with Moses on account of them. Because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. What did the people do here? They provoked Moses. This was the sin of provocation. They complained and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed until Moses had enough. And he acted rashly. He missed out on entering the promised land because of his behavior. And it cost Moses dearly. This was, this was a, serious, a serious error on Moses' part, a serious action. But God here indicates in this psalm that he was, it was primarily Israel's This was Israel's sin. They were the ones who were contentious and difficult and stubborn and so persistent that Moses and Aaron grew exasperated and impatient. After all, Moses and Aaron were just men. The children of Israel pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And as a result, they caused their leaders to suffer. Their critical spirit, their constant complaining, and it drove Moses and Aaron to the brink here where they, they, they rashly, says, he rashly spoke, and it cost Moses. But God says, this is your fault. You were the ones who sinned this way. You were the ones who were stubborn and contentious, who provoked Moses' spirit. I believe, by the way, that's what verse 33 is saying. I, you realize that the the capitalization of his spirit there is something that the New King James translators interpreted that way as being the spirit of God. I don't believe it. That's what it's referring to. I think it's referring to the spirit of Moses. That they rebelled against Moses' spirit. They stirred up Moses so that he spoke rashly with his lips. People were contentious and committed the sin of provocation. Finally, the psalmist brings up the sin that plagued Israel from the day they entered the land until the day that they were carried away captive by Babylon. Look at verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. I think God was angry with the Canaanites because of their slaughtering of their children. God was angry with the Israelites because they followed suit and slaughtered their children. As I said, we dare not condemn a previous generation and fail to recognize our own sin. Because it still goes on today. Verse 39. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance and he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles. And those who hated them ruled over them. 
Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel. And listen, this is so important. And were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. This is the sin of compromise. I know there's a whole lot here that they did, but at its root, this is the sin of compromise. They failed to completely obey Yahweh and drive out the Canaanites from the land. And because they left pockets of these pagan people in the land, they, they, they didn't fully obey. They, they didn't fully rid themselves in the land of these, of these evil influences. They themselves began to be corrupted by the influence of the world. They began to follow the immoral ways of these people. Even to the point where they sacrificed their own children to demons. And the consequence of them doing that, he says, is they polluted the land. But that wasn't the worst consequence. He says that they defiled themselves to the point where in verse 40, Yahweh abhorred his own inheritance. Just contrast verse 40 with what he says back in verse 5. That I may see the benefit of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. This is the hope of the salvation of Israel, is that they would be the inheritance of God. They would be, that, that He would glory with them, that there would be a, a, a weight, a holiness, a majesty, that God would, would love and would cherish them as His inheritance. And yet, verse 40, what do we see? God abhorred them. He was disgusted with them. He hated them. The point here is that the Israelites did everything they could to make God turn away, to make Him withdraw His hand of blessing and support. They made themselves objects of disgust to God. And He gave them over to their enemies to be oppressed. Of course, then what would happen is they would cry out to Him and the Lord would hear them and He would deliver them, but then they would just rebel again and the whole cycle would start over. You read about it through the book of Judges, then you read about it all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, the whole history of the nation of Israel. One after another after another, we see this cycle repeating. The people falling away from God, committing idolatry and immorality, sacrificing their children to idols, all of these things. Suffering the, the oppression of their enemies, and then God hearing their cries, restoring them, and then they fall away again and continue over and over. And ultimately, it got to the point where God sent Assyria and then Babylon to invade the land, took the people captive and carry them away into exile and utterly destroy them. And even there, when they were hundreds of miles from home and completely cut off from the place of God's blessing, he says here, they cried out to the Lord in their distress and he heard them. And he remembered his covenant with them. Oh, the goodness and the loyal love of God is forever. 
Even in the midst of judgment, even when they're scattered into these pagan lands because they have committed these gross atrocities and they have made themselves abhorrent to God, even there, the loyal love of God and His goodness remain. He remembered His covenant with them. He pitied them and He caused their captors to have mercy on them. Even after centuries of continued disobedience and rebellion, God's mercy never wavered, not once. And this brings us finally to the hope of confession. The hope of confession. There's a purpose here for the psalmist in reciting this dismal history of the people of Israel. Not enjoyable. But it teaches us something about the nature of man, doesn't it? What it's, it's interesting as you think about this psalm because on one hand this psalm is emphasizing that God is constant and unchanging. His, his loyal love and His goodness are always there. But you know what it also t- shows us? It shows us that man is unchanging too. Right? It shows us that we don't really change very much. The same sins, the same failures that the ancient Israelites were committed were repeated in the lives of their children and their grandchildren all the way down to the time of the exile and afterward when this psalm was written. And those same sins still plague us today. The only hope that we have, the only hope that we have is the mercy of God. If you realize today that you are guilty of some of these same sins. Not necessarily in the same context, but with the same heart issues. You realize you've not believed the Word of God. You've not believed the promise of God. You've not believed in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That you've been discontented, jealous, idolatrous, fearful, and you've provoked God by your stubbornness and your rebellion. Then you need to humble yourself before the Lord. You need to confess your sins and turn to Him for mercy. He's good and His faithful love endures forever. The Bible tells us that he will forgive the soul that has grieved over sin and prays for pardon. So trust in the promise of his salvation. Bear your soul to him. He'll forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. That's what, that's what he, uh, the Bible tells us Jesus Christ died for. He died in your place. He paid the debt for your sin. Because you are guilty before God. Because you have committed sin. You need to confess that you're a sinner, they need to ask the Lord to save you. But even as Christians, I mean, even if you've done that, even if you have repented of your sins and you trusted Christ, even as Christians, we're still very much like these ancient Israelites. We fail God over and over. I mean, we say every time that it's going to be the last time. That we're going to do better next time. That we won't do this again. That we're going to see the temptation coming and we're going to hide. Or we're going to reach out for help before it gets too far. The truth is, those things don't work to change us. There's only one hope for real and lasting change. And it's found in the God who never changes. As I said, this is the hope of confession. The psalmist touched on it earlier, but he comes back to it, verse 47. Notice what he says, Save us, O Lord, our God. And gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. The hope of confession 
is that God's mercy will continue. God has been merciful to the generations that came before us. He has been merciful over and over and over again to people who have turned from their sin, who have confessed their sin, and have cried out to Him. Truth be told, He's been merciful to you and to me many, 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 many times over. The hope of confession, the reason that we confess our sins to God, the reason we ought to do that, the hope is that God will still be merciful yet one more time. That God is just as merciful today as He has been in the past. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. This is the message of Psalm 106. That God's mercy is still available. That it continues today and tomorrow and forever. That it is inexhaustible and imperishable. That He offers it to all those who will truly confess their sins. Just like the psalmist does so openly and honestly here. Let me ask you this morning, do you feel beaten down by your sin? Are you tired of always losing the battle? Christian, confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your sin and receive uh, cleansing and forgiveness. That's the promise from God. Have you fallen again after promising yourself and others that you wouldn't do it anymore? Turn to the Lord for deliverance. Yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. His grace is the only solution that can break the power of your sin. No amount of personal reform. You can't come to church and do religious activity. It doesn't help. It won't break the bonds of your sin. Only the grace of God applied by Jesus Christ can do that. That's it. That's why the psalmist prays for deliverance at the beginning of the psalm and again at the end. He's already a believer. He recognizes his own sin and his need for grace. The question this morning is, do you return to him? Confess your sin. Pray for grace to obey and trust in the Lord whose faithful love endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we're going to be honest this morning, and we need to be, we have sinned. We've sinned over and over more times than we can count. You have been merciful to us so many times in the past. Today, Lord, we need your mercy again. Help us to turn to you, to confess our sins, and to trust that you are still and always merciful. Thank you, Lord, that your mercy endures forever. Thank you that your goodness is to all generations. So that we can see that the way you worked in the past and the way you were uh, patient and merciful and forgiving and remembering your covenant promises to the Israelites is the same way you are today. Help us to avail ourselves today of your grace by believing the promise confessing our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, our Savior who forgives and who restores and who heals and cleanses. Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us to examine ourselves, 
to cry out for you for mercy and to receive pardon. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never, never done that, who's never realized their own sin, that they would realize today that they're a sinner. They'd see it very clearly that they have sinned against you. And there's no hope of making it right. All they can do is come to you and beg for mercy. And help them also to realize that your word says you will be merciful because Jesus died for them, paid for their sin, that they might have the forgiveness freely offered. Lord, I pray that each one here would trust in you. We'll give you the thanks for what you do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.